You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Good morning. Buenos dias. Shalom. Shalom alaikum. If you have your Bibles, open up to Ephesians chapter 2. Glad that you guys are here. Glad to be here. I uh, count it a privilege to stand before you. I'm grateful to be at Bethel. Like said, we are certainly pregnant. Me, uh, not so much. Wife, definitely. So she's back there. So if she does stand up, just somebody give me the nod and then I'll... I'll tap in one of you, so be alert. You might be called upon to preach the rest of this passage. Uh, but Ephesians 2 is where we're going to be hanging out. Uh, I am Tyler, and I am married. I've uh, been married for about five years now. I've uh, been in Tyler for about three years. Excited to be here. Never thought I would wind up in my namesake. I'm from Alabama. Uh, met my wife. Roll Tide, come on. That's good. Any SEC fans? That's fine. We can all be friends here. We all worship the same God. Amen. We met Pine Cove, vacated Texas for about a minute, came back, came to Dallas and back to Tyler in 2015. Been plugged into Bethel for about three years now. Just love being here. Uh, and if that's your story, I, I think we probably share that experience. It just feels like home. It feels like a place where, you know, it's like cheers. Everybody knows your name. And if that hasn't been your experience, hopefully uh, I get a chance to meet you and know your name. Have been uh, around here for a, f- a few years. I get to serve uh, as a as a kind of a shepherd of life groups, making sure that they're equipped and, and feel supported. Uh, also, I'm a therapist in town, so uh, I, I love getting to do what I do, just sitting with people in the midst of their muck and mire. I'm excited to be a dad. Life is pretty fun right now. Excited about who I am and, and what I'm doing here in Tyler. And I'll ask you that same question to wrestle through for the next half hour or so, is who are you? And what are you doing here? Because it's that question that gives me some direction on where my foundation lies and what exactly I'm supposed to do. I started wrestling with that question as most of us do around middle school, which is that lovely time. Any middle schoolers in here? Uh, middle schoolers are like, I don't want to raise my hand because I feel super awkward even doing that. Middle school. <laughs> It's just a weird time. So if that's you, that's okay. (laughs) And if you've been there, which if you're uh, sitting in this room, it's likely that you've been there. Middle school is just a weird time. And that's where we're kind of wrestling through our identity. Who are we? What are we doing here? Where do I fit in? Where do I belong? And as I was wrestling through that uh, around, I don't know, 12 or so, uh, I found that, and it's really, you don't really realize it. When you're in middle school, you realize it much later you know, probably in my 20s or so, uh, you realize where we base our identity oftentimes isn't necessarily what's in reality. So growing up in Coleman, Alabama, where chickens are the economy, uh, and in fact, to find my home on Google Maps, you would just locate uh, a poultry farm here, a poultry farm here. Okay, mine's in the middle of that. And that's pretty true of any home you would find in Coleman, Alabama. Uh, Coleman, Alabama is known for their strong work ethic, their uh, commitment to just working hard, uh, which I didn't really realize that until I Googled it. So it's on Wikipedia. So if I see some of you Googling, uh, this is the Rose Capital. We're the 
strong work capital of, uh, of Alabama. Love growing up there. That, that culture, though, seeped down into my local church because I did get plugged into church when I was in middle school. Uh, and I, that, I, that sense of um, doing in order to be became sort of what I'd lived for. That was the air that I breathed. Because uh, who I am was definitely dependent on what I did. And it, I don't think that was because my VBS workers or my children's ministry workers or, or my youth group leader was you know, trying to let me uh, grow up with this workspace identity. It's just kind of the interpretation that I got was who you are is definitely dependent on what you do. In fact, the, the phrase that was mostly in my head was, you know, a list of to-dos and to-don'ts. And so uh, a big one for me was don't, don't drink, you know, don't dip, don't chew, don't run with girls that do those sorts of things. Uh, don't have sex because you might end up dancing. Like I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. <laughs> is what I'm talking about? Some of you are like still scarred from the years. Love where I grew up. The gospel is probably there, but I kind of missed it. See, my activity in high school was very much my identity. I'd placed my faith in what I did. In fact, when I went back from my high school reunion a couple of years ago, my 10-year reunion, uh, which was in my 20s, which I can say that now because I'm 30, right? <laughs> back in my 20s. Uh, those are the good old days. So in my 20s when I went to my reunion, it was funny because uh, Smith County is very similar to Coleman County in that we went wet. Y'all remember when we went wet back in the day? which means you can now serve alcohol in the city limits. Uh, so that happened to my town, and so I ordered a beverage because I was legal, and that's what you do. And everybody was like appalled at my table. Uh, and, it, and it was crazy because my identity was my activity, and everything that the people saw when I was in high school was, you're this pious person. You stay away from everything that's sinful and awful. See, I'd built a reputation. Now, it's not a terrible thing that that's kind of my identity or that, that my activity was good and right. Because some of you are like, well, that's not bad. Like, isn't it okay if I teach that to my children? Absolutely. But the problem for me was that that had become my foundation, that my foundation was in what I did. And it was, it's sad to actually think back uh, on the people that I may have hurt. You talk to my family. I mean, I can't imagine how they might have experienced this beautiful cup of me uh, that was so good and that uh, when they're around me, I imagine they just kind of felt shunned or judged, just a complete lack of empathy and care. Please don't talk to my high school girlfriends. <laughs> and I won't ask you about yours either. And so that's the reality. The reality was, although my identity was based off of my activity, even my activity was subpar. But at very least, it made me feel better about my relationship with God because at least people saw this pretty version of myself. See, my identity was in my activity. I was terribly good. I was terribly good. Let that sit in. Is that my activity was nice and pretty. But it was terrible because my works were my identity. And the issue that I struggle with growing up, I think, is very similar to the issue of just religion in general in the world that we live in. Uh, this is the idea that I need to do something to earn right standing before whatever God that I choose. Uh, uh, I need to go to Mecca. I need to pray. I need to, f I need to fast. I need to give a certain amount of money. I need to uh, work with these... Uh, 
uh, rosary beads enough. I need to serve the homeless in order that I might have right standing before my God and that I might have favor enough to join him in whatever eternal reality that is true for me. And that's the religious aspect. Secular world, the world that we live in, oftentimes places that, uh, that source of identity and, and sense of self in uh, the, the things that we can accomplish, the things that we can do, our perception from our neighbors, the cars that we drive, the boats that we have. We live by Lake Palestine, right? And you got a, anybody got a boat? No judgment. But I want to know you because I want <laughs> to ride in your boat. It's that idea that I need to have the best family, and I certainly need to make sure that the world sees me having an awesome time with my family. Look at me, being a dad, hashtag dad moments, hashtag mom life, mom life's tough. Those are all good things, but the reality is we can begin to, in the world, create an identity based on my performance and what I do. See, your activity determines your identity. Christianity basically flips that script, and it says, ah, you got it wrong. See, your identity determines your activity. Now that's true not only if you're a believer or you're not. And what we'll find in Ephesians 2 is Paul kind of exposes us to a life that we are by nature and a life that we have by grace. When we flip the script and we get it backwards, we end up reading the last part of the text we're going to read today first. And we don't really think about the first part of the text. So what we want to do is we want to actually rightly divide the word. We want to actually understand what he's saying. And when we read Ephesians, we're really getting an insight into where does my identity come from and therefore, what do I do? Paul writes Ephesians uh, around 60, early 60s, uh, the first century AD. And he writes it to a group of people. He writes it to the Ephesians, but... Uh, he's, he's really meant for this letter to be circulated around and for everybody in the area to read it. It's sort of like he wrote the letter to Tyler, but honestly, Jacksonville needs to read it. Lindell definitely needs to read it. Uh, White House, they might get it towards the end. Uh, he's writing this to a, a bunch of people so that they might hear the truth about themselves and respond. Again, uh, this is the takeaway. If you don't get anything else today, here's what I want you to remember, is that my identity determines my activity and not the other way around. My identity determines my activity. Let's start reading. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. True story. I just tried to scroll up in my physical Bible. <laughs> just so you know. Starts out in probably the, the most dismal way ever, and he says, and you were dead. That's a bummer. 
straight away, the reality of death is, is straight away the first thing that we're going to look at. Now, I don't know if you've been to a funeral lately, uh, and if you have, you can join me as I recollect my experience of funerals growing up. I went, someone in here will beat me, but I went to a lot, I felt like a lot of funerals. Like everyone seemed to die at a time in my family when I was you know, conscious enough to understand what was going on. So between, I don't know, eight and 18, I think I counted up, I was like, 13 is about the number that I went to, a funeral that I actually went to. I knew the people, I knew the life that they lived, and most of them were my family members, 75%. And so there were, there were certain ways that you went about going to a funeral, uh, mainly which you show up. In Alabama, there's always an open casket, unless there was some reason not to have an open casket. And you would come up and visit them, and if you were the pallbearer, you always carried them out. And that's sort of the order and structure. Uh, Besides the fact that funerals were kind of fun for me in a weird way in that uh, I got to drink coffee and that wasn't a thing that we did at home and so I just put tons of sugar and creamer. Uh, that's kind of a side note. Funerals, going to the funeral, one of the things that was true, and maybe this has been your experience, I, I assume it has been your experience, is that once a person is in the casket, they just, they don't get back up. There's a finality to it. A deep sadness, sure, a grief, but something that I never saw was somebody in the casket. They just never happened. It would have been super weird. Like, you know, Jesus has totally raised this person to life again. A little Lazarus ceremony in, in a funeral. This hasn't been my experience. It was when Paul says, and you were dead in your transgressions and sins, straight away we know that there was no life in us to raise ourselves up. We were a lifeless corpse. The blood that our heart beats and the air that we breathe no longer happened. We were lifeless and dead in our trespasses and sin. This is the identity straight away that we had as people who weren't of the household of faith. There was no divine human cooperation in this. We weren't like mostly dead. We were all the way dead. You guys remember Princess Bride? You know, Princess, or Princess Buttercup and Wesley, his quest to find her. Along the way, Wesley comes upon uh, some misfortune, and, uh, and he dies. You know, we've all been there, right? And so he accidentally dies, but he's got two compatriots with him. What are their names? Fezzik and Inigo Montoya, right? They help him get along to Miracle Max, and Max uh, immediately says, well, there's nothing I can do, and then he's... They barter, and eventually he says, okay, I'll, I'll try to help him come back to life. And so Miracle Max starts yelling at him. And Ego says, well, he can't hear you. He's dead. And he says, Miracle Max says, aha, you think you know everything. He's only mostly dead. And if he's uh, mostly dead, that means he's slightly alive. And I can work with that. So they billow him full of air, and they give him a pill, and he comes back to life. And if you haven't seen it, I'll just go ahead and spoil it. He gets Buttercup in the end, which you should watch the movie. It's really fun. <laughs> We were fully dead. We weren't mostly dead. There was no life in us because the spiritual reality was that we were very far off from Him. We didn't experience any intimacy with Him. We were dead. Chapter 4 of Ephesians gives us some clarity in saying that we were alienated from the life of God. And we know that from John 17, it says eternal life is knowing God. If you don't know God, you are lifeless, you're a corpse. You are dead. This is your identity. 
I remember in middle school, this never happened to me, it only happened to friends, but this may have happened to you. Someone bully slaps a sticker on my back. This is the picture I want you to have. And on my back, it might have said, kick me or whatever. Um, does this ever happen to him? Is this a real thing or is this like a TV thing? Okay, uh, I'm a therapist, so we can talk about that later. <laughs> um, the sticker on this person's back says, I'm dead but I don't even know it. See, they live in ignorance of their own depravity. And what Paul says is that's their identity. That's the world they live, the air that they breathe. So dead people are, in verse 2 it says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He's not only given an identity statement, but he's also showing us what the direction is. And dead people do what dead people do, and that is trespasses and sins. Basically the idea here is that no matter if you meant to or you didn't mean to, whether you in intentionally missed the mark or you accidentally fell into some sin, the reality is that's, you're, you're culpable for those things. God holds you responsible for those things. And we see that in the coming verses there's an external uh, external component to sin and also an internal component. The external comes here in, in the next verse. It says, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The external component would be following the course of the world. And what Paul would have known as he's writing to this culture, to this, this city of Ephesians, fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, big deal, they had everything. If you've ever been to Ephesus, you'll see that it's very grand and very pretty. Even in, in its uh, slightly excavated state, you can see that it's, it's incredible. They have an event center. They have heated floors. They have running water. They have urinals kind of in the street, but at least there's a way for it to kind of flush out of the city. Big deal. It's really cool for the ancient world. They're known for their uh, magic arts, their sorcery, their uh, exorcist. Uh, they're known for their worship of God Artemis uh, or Diana, the fertility god, that they might pray to her and they would be showered with blessings of fertility. And if you've ever seen a statue of her, you know why that she's the fertility god. Uh, they're known for their idol making. Uh, you, if you remember in Acts the, the story of Demetrius the silversmith when Paul goes up to the city and he begins to speak against the, uh, the making of idols by human hands and Demetrius gets really upset and he's like you know that's what I do right like I make idols with my hands like. so bummer for him Paul basically is entering into this world where they're making idols by human hands they're worshipping a false god they're, uh, they lack nothing there's so much wealth in the city, uh, but also there's a, a very real sense of depravity. Sex is everywhere. In fact, if you go to Ephesus now, there's still graphic images showing you where you can find the things that would fill your soul, uh, so it says. Images saying that this is where you can find satisfaction. It's everywhere. It's a port city, so sailors are there. And sailors like what sailors like. Never been a sailor, but evidently that's what they like. Which is not too distant from where we're at, right? The course of our world, only it's not so vocal. We wouldn't go out to necessarily in front of our church and find you know, signs that point to where you can get to a brothel. 
likely you would find signs on the internet or find something uh, much more sub uh, clandestine, something that wouldn't be as um, out in front, but very much there. Uh, we still experience that in our culture. We, uh, culturally speaking, just for a moment, we might uh, classify a lot of what we crave in our culture as comfort. Just having exactly what we need. That's, we just like having our own little farm, our own little space, away from all that mess out there in Dallas. And Shreveport, do people even... Nobody covets Shreveport. <laughs> we live in a culture of excess. We like to have nice toys. We live by the lake. We like to have nice boats. Anybody got a boat? No judgment. I would like your boat. Just, we'll connect later. We live in a culture of the promotion of self. Self-image being promoted via ourselves. Socially. Social media. Right? It doesn't take very long to see what people think about themselves because the culture is very much, you need to let the world know who you are. We live in a culture of complete tolerance and acceptance of every practice and what's true for me is true for me and that's okay and you should never judge me. You should never judge me for what I think is true. That's the world, the reality that we live in. Whatever I want is right for me. And so the picture that I have is of a bull. And the reason why I know this image is not because I grew up with bulls. Uh, because I, It's because I hung out with Mark Kirkendall this week, um, which is the pastor of our White House campus. And he informed me because he's from Arkansas. And so Arkansas people know this. Uh, is that when you put a ring in a bull's nose, you stick it through the septum. If you can imagine something going through your septum, uh, it just sounds miserable. Uh, but you put that ring through the septum, and it makes it very easy for you to lead that cow around, uh, for, to lead that bull around. This is the image that I have of being following, of us following the course of this world, is that we're being led around, because where the head goes, everything else goes, being led around by the course of this world. Not only that, continuing on in verse 2, it says this, following the prince of the power of the air. That is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What he means there, the prince of the power of the air, he's talking about Satan. Uh, that is the dragon from the beginning, the spirit that fell down, Lucifer taking a host of uh, angels with him. He is actually at work wanting to draw believers and non-believers away from who God is. And I think sometimes we can get that a little muddied down, a little bit whitewashed, because we don't actually see the reality that He is a very awful being who wants nothing else than for you to be destroyed. Sometimes we have the image of the Torchy's Taco, little demon baby with a pitch, pitchfork, right? Because he's cute and cuddly and he makes good tacos and that's okay as long as I get my fill. The reality is we have a deceiver who wants nothing more than to lie and pull you away from the things that God has for you. It's a very real reality at that time. There were sorcerers and exorcists, right? That's what's going on. But we need to remember that that's very much a reality now. And, and, and maybe even... Uh, true in ways that we can't see that it makes it even worse for us because we're not awakened to that reality that that's the prince of the power of the air the culture that we live in there's an external motivation but there's also an internal we'll continue on it says uh, in verse 3 among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind 
and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He's already told us you are dead. He's just told us that we were uh, sons of disobedience. We literally submit ourselves to Satan. And thirdly, in an internal way, we just follow our passions. We follow our flesh. And by very nature, the fact that you were born, no matter you were born today or 50 years ago, the fact that you were born means you were a child of wrath. This cute little baby that's going to come out, boy or girl, don't know yet, it will be, by nature, pre-programmed for sin and disobedience. Even if Satan's not like trying to pull him away from us and telling us to really disobey, and even if the world doesn't distract him and pull him into the satisfaction of things that it has to offer, our baby, without the grace of God, will grow up to be a rebellious soul. So even if the world and Satan pull back, we're still culpable. We are by nature children of wrath. If the first sticker said dead, the second one says you're a son of disobedience. The third one says you're a child of wrath. The Rolling Stones, I think, said it pretty well as they told the story in Sympathy for the Devil, uh, the story Mick Jagger tells in the, from, from the perspective of Satan, is that all this bad stuff happened and he's very much involved. But the person that we should definitely be worried about is the person standing right in front of us. Uh, in, in, in seminary, we, we used a lot of uh, 60s and 70s music uh, to, to learn theology because those are some of our best theologians. Am I right? Uh, he says this, We have seen the devil and he is us. As much as we are bothered by the devil, how much more should we be bothered by what we see in the mirror? Certainly there's a negative impact of the culture that we live in, the world that we live in, Satan himself, but even more so, we have been pre-programmed for destruction, and the devil that sometimes we miss is the one looking at us in the mirror, because we think we're awesome. I do anyway. We choose ourselves. You see, our identity determines our activity, and if our identity is in all of these things with all the stickers that say on my back, then I do what a dead person does. But my identity determines my activity, so if that identity changes, then I've been given new activity. So the first seven verses are actually one sentence. As you read through the first seven verses, the first three verses are actually subordinate to the next four verses. In, in English, we see it as, as one long sentence, but it's actually, or in English, we see it as two different sentences, but it's actually one long sentence. So the reader of Ephesians in the Greek would have been able to see, okay, I, I know that the subject hasn't happened yet. I know that the verbs, are, they're only subordinate. That means they're, they're not the main point. They're not the main stage actor. They're, they're the, they're the warm-up. They're the verse. The chorus hasn't happened yet. So as we read this, know that the music is building. The people in the crowds are starting to stand up because what's about to happen is God's going to show up. And let's read in verse 4. But God. Maybe the best but you've ever seen. <laughs> Besides my wife. <laughs> but God, but God, 
This is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God who spoke to Moses in the burning bush, the one who sent the prophets, who raised up kings, who said, I'm coming, I'm coming, and Jesus came. He lived the perfect life. He died the death that we deserve. He raised to life. And this is the God who's about to show up, and he's going to tell us who we are. We're going to find out a little bit about that God. He's rich in mercy. That, that mercy is another, uh, they translate it, it's the same word they use in the Old Testament for chesed. Everybody says, it's just fun to say. It's a girl, chesed. It's that loving kindness that God shows to his people throughout history. He has been showing, he is faithfully committed to a people who are stubborn and rebellious and choose themselves. But God, who is rich in mercy, He has a covenant love that is based on promise. It's not based on performance. It's based on promise, not on performance. Because of the great love with which He loved us. Accepting that idea is crucial for us to recognize that God's love is what motivates Him to action. It's not our good behavior that gets God in a position where he goes, wow, that's Sullins. That's me, that's my last name. That's Sullins. He's really getting it. Maybe I should come down and bless him. Maybe I should save him. Maybe I should do a good work in his life. It's his love for us that motivates him to action. And we're going to get the part where uh, it's not motivated by any of my good works in a second. But the, the idea that I can't coerce God, I can't draw Him up into uh, a, a state of going, man, that Solons is really getting it. Man, Bethel's really getting it, and so I'm really going to bless them uh, because of how good they are. He says, you know what? It's based on my covenant faithful love to you, and it has nothing to do with what you've done. See, God is all-powerful, but He actually cares about us. And recognizing that He is a caring, loving, faithful God, and that has nothing to do with us. See, one of the things we have on our mantle at home is a, is a sign that says, Our God can and that He cares. And if you come over to our house, you'll see it. It's there because we want to remember that. We want to remember that we have a strong and faithful, powerful, omnipotent God who can. But if that's it, if we have a strong and faithful and, and uh, a strong, powerful, mighty God, but He doesn't care about us, if I don't believe that God actually loves me enough to, and cares enough about me to act, then we have a really strong God who created the world and said, deuces, I'm out, and goes and does His own thing. But the opposite is also true. If we have this God who really cares, he's really, He really loves us, and He really uh, has good things to say about us, but He's not all-powerful, we have a really caring God who's willing to sit beside us when we're feeling depressed or lonely or anxious and says, I'm so sorry that that's the case. I just can't do anything about it. So we have to believe both, right, that God can act and that He has acted and that He actually cares about you and He actually cared about you before you did anything. And we're going to see that in verse 5. It says this, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, it wasn't like God died and was like, we'll just see what happens, you know. We'll see what, uh, we'll see what Sullins ends up doing. Because if he had, he'd, he'd have found me at a, at a state of depravity and, and I'm doing the things that make me happy. See, God isn't surprised that he chose you, right? If you're a believer in this room right now, you, it isn't by accident that the Lord chose you, called you, saved you, redeemed you, and 
is about to tell you who you are, it's no accident that you are who you are. And he, even when we were dead, even when we were rebellious, even when we had those stickers on our back, we were being pulled around by the passions of our flesh, it was at that very moment that he intervened, that he came in. And here's what he did. And you see that in the life of Paul, too, uh, and that Paul was very far off from him. And I don't know if any of you have ever said, like, well, there was, there was this two or three year stretch where I was murdering people, you know, just like slaying them and saying to everybody, hey, it's fine if you kill them. But that was Paul's life. And the Lord chose him even before he was born that he would be a minister of the gospel. And here's what he says about you, right? Our identity is not based on our activity, but our identity determines our activity. So here's your identity. He has made you alive together with Christ, it says in verse 6. And the, the cool thing is right after this, he says, he's made us alive together with Christ. And it's like, he, he breaks grammar here. He doesn't, he doesn't keep things tidy. It's like he, he can't keep his pen from writing this phrase because he's going to say it later in verse 8, but he can't, he can't keep it in. Because what does he say? By grace you've been saved. It's as if he's this kid on, on Christmas morning who's like, I gotta get in there. I gotta see the present. And it's a beautiful thing because it's, it's that reminder that it's nothing to do with you. I hope you hear that. Because you were dead. And he made you alive. He gives us this grace, this charis, this unmerited favor that's based on promise, not on performance. And it's not just temporary, but the word even means it's an ongoing and a permanent state that it doesn't end because you got mad and yelled at the guy at the foundry this morning. I saw you. It doesn't end. It's not based on performance. It's based on promise. And he goes on to say, and raised us up and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I love comedy. I'm not a super funny person in a comedy sketch kind of routine. I'm the guy who's sitting at the back who's like, you know, you got to be sitting right next to me to hear something funny. But I love watching comedy. And one of the things that I love about it, uh, and especially you see this in Seinfeld, any Seinfeld fans out there, uh, they'll do like a callback. Uh, they'll say something in an episode and everybody will laugh. And then maybe 20 minutes later, they call back to something that happened earlier on. And you get an even bigger laugh and even uh, a bigger bellow guttural kind of... <laughs> That's how Caitlin laughs. This is a callback to uh, chapter 1, verse 20, when he says this, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him up from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The reader's going, he just said that about Jesus, the Christ, the perfect one. I raised him up physically. I raised him up and seated him at my right hand. And now he's telling the reader, oh yeah, the same things that are true about Jesus, spiritually, they're the same for you. So your identity is in Christ, with Christ. You've been united with Christ. You're not alone. There's going to be some serious implications to this too, especially when Paul writes in Colossians 3.1, he says this, if you've been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above. But before we get there, why would God be motivated to such action? What would motivate Him to even want to intervene? We know that He can intervene, but why would He want to do that? And here's the thing, and this is what you read in all throughout Scripture. Is that what? So that in verse 7 it says this, So that in the coming ages 
he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, that we might be to the praise of his glorious grace, might be to the praise of his glory, he says in chapter 1. Piper says it this way, God's glory is the going public of his infinite worth. It's the IPO. It's the going public and saying, God is infinitely worthy and, and mighty and powerful. And we, in the way that we show him to the world because of who we are, gives him the most glory. That's why he does it. And again, he'll go on in verse 8 to say again what he said just a second ago. This is the one that most of us have memorized. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What is this? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this? The way that I read that is this is, this is all of that. The grace and the faith, the gift of faith to even believe. People differ here for sure. But I think the, the gift of faith to even believe is a gift of the Father. So if at any point you're going, well, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm slightly alive. I'm just mostly dead. This sort of wipes the slate clean and says, you know what? This is not your own doing, for it is by grace that you've been saved. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of works. Why? Because our activity doesn't determine our identity. See, our identity determines our activity. And for some of you, you've been sitting in the room going, well, he hasn't told me anything I need to do yet. He's just up there telling me who I am. This is what we have to get correct first. Because if I don't know who I am, I'm aimlessly on this hamster wheel of life trying to prove my worth. My wife says, hustling for your worth. I'm out there trying to prove myself worthy by what I do. And this verse totally flips that script. But yet, because of who you are, God has given you good works to do. What are those? Verse 10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He says we are His workmanship. The word means poetry, poema. We are His uh, masterpiece. Uh, he uses this word only a couple of times in Romans and here, and he's referring to the creation as a whole. He's referring to the creation that he made in you and the culmination of all the things he's done to redeem mankind. That is his workmanship. You have the hand of God. You are an image bearer. And the fact that he has done what he's done and called you who you are frees you up to do what the second half of this verse says. And Ephesians 4, if you read later, will give you a little bit of context for that. But... What are these good works? We could spend eight months talking about what the good works are that God has created you to do. So shout out to my wife, because that's what she does for work. Uh, she is a disciple of people, helping them understand what their good works are, specifically how God's created them. Oftentimes we're created to be a hammer, but we're walking through the world being like, my screwdriver doesn't work. It's like, well, you're a hammer. These good works here, I, they're even general and specific right here. So the, the good works that Christ has created you to do are essentially this. And it relieves some of you from like, my spiritual gifts test just hasn't got me where I want to be yet. This is, it's okay. Because the good works 
our journal enough to include all of us, and, and we can get really deep down in the rabbit hole too, uh, and, and that's a, a fun thing to do as well. But what are these good works? In general, it's this. It's the carrying out of God's character in the world around you. It's the carrying out uh, of God's glory to the people who live and work beside you. It's that the idea that I show the world who God is by how I live and my humility and my patience, by loving my wife well, by serving uh, in my community, by treating my barista, treating my server with adequate respect and love and care. It's paying my taxes on time. It's being God's character, being just like God in the world that we live in. Matthew says it this way, let your light... Uh, speaking, Jesus is speaking, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds, and here it is, and glorify your Father who is in heaven, right? It's our identity that determines our activity, and that our identity in, sh in its activity shows who God is. It's not for the purpose of giving me a source of okayness, of some comfortability, See, my identity determines my activity. And when I get that wrong, when I go to verse 10 and I go, I like verse 10. Verse 10 makes sense, right? I'm his workmanship. I'm supposed to do these good works. But when I get it backwards, it's like trying to put together a piece of Ikea furniture, but missing the first three steps. And if you're like me, you just jump in and you start putting it together. And then at the end, you're like, darn L bracket. Who needs one, really, anyway? But we get it out of order. See, we are indeed created in Christ Jesus to do something. And for those of you who are wondering what you're supposed to do, I've got a couple options for you. It might be the case that you're a believer here today, and you've been walking around in your old identity with that ring in your nose being pulled around by every whim, uh, by everything that seems right. Well, the world says it's true. It's probably supposed to believe that we just love who we want to love and we just kind of love the things that the world loves and, and that's okay. Perhaps that's been you. Perhaps you've been given a new identity, you've been called a new name and you have forgotten and you've lapsed back, Hebrews says, and you've forgotten the God who called you a new name. So you have a new identity. Here's the news flash that needs to be reading on your mantle. I'm not dead anymore. That's not who you are anymore. So when you're walking in those fleshly desires and the passions that Satan yourself and the world wants you to do, I'm not dead anymore. That's not who I am anymore. That's why it feels uncomfortable. That's why we have a, a, a sense of uh, shame and guilt. Hopefully that's a godly conviction that that's not your identity anymore. You've been given a new name. Perhaps you're a believer here and, and you've, like me, created an identity that's based solely on your activity and you're tired and you're exhausted and you've been doing all of the right things. I mean, you're here. You made it. Put on your nice clothes. I mean, we look good. Look at your neighbor. Just go ahead and do it. Look at your neighbor. Tell them you look good because you do. And surface level, we all look good here. Sunday morning is a really good time to look good, to smell good. I put on deodorant today. Amen? From Alabama, so I've been craving some amens. It might be that you've been fine saying, yeah, I'm a believer. I'm called by His name. I've been given a new identity. 
But those works, where are they? Right, because you have been given a new identity, therefore you've been given new activity, and it might very well be that you need to do something. You might need to find that something even here at Bethel. If you've been with us for a while, you know that there's not a whole lot of people that are paid to do church, me included. I don't do this for money. It's, most of the people who serve here serve for nothing. And maybe this is a place for you to find community to be plugged in, to be doing those good works, to be evidencing humility and patience and kindness in the way that you interact in a small group, in the way that you hold a baby, right? We, we need some people to hold babies, and you're like, well, my spiritual gift test tells me I'm an exhortation kind of person. I don't hold babies. You're created in Christ Jesus for good works. Sometimes that looks like holding babies. One of, the, one of the things that I always tell people is that when you're in the context of community, you will get a better idea of those specific works that you've been created for, and that's why we have that avenue of life groups here. And if you're not in one, well, I want to invite you. I want to invite you into a place where other people might be mirrors to your life and that you might actually evidence your identity you, the Holy Spirit in you, speaking to the Holy Spirit in them, letting them know who they are, because if you're like me, I forget, and I lapse back. Perhaps that's the next step for you. Maybe you need to even lead a life group. Hey, no judgment. I would love to invite you in to have a conversation about that. Perhaps that's the next step for you. And maybe it's as simple as going, I eat every day, love eating, I just need to invite somebody into that. You want to go eat with me? Look, I'm going to give you guys an open invitation to invite me to eat food with you. Because I do that about three times a day. It's marvelous. And in doing that, maybe we're inviting the people in this room to be with us and to eat bread together. And perhaps we're in our neighborhood. Um... Maybe you're inviting people who live nearby who don't know Jesus. Maybe you're inviting them into your world so that they may see your good works and they might be able to give glory to God the Father. And maybe that's your story today. Maybe I have no idea why you came, but you're here and you're going, I don't know about this Jesus stuff. Consider this an invitation. Because what I've preached to all of us today and to myself is that God He's not impressed by your activity right because it's based on promise not on performance see my identity determines my activity and maybe you're hearing that message for the first time and you're going, that makes sense and you're going well what do I need to do nothing the question is do you believe that not just intellectually but are you willing to place your faith in that I believe the chair will hold me up are you willing to sit in it as an evidence of faith. Do you believe? Who are you and what are you doing here? My identity determines my activity. What if we as a church began to live that way? What if we actually began to be the people that when people came, they were like, first straight away, people wanted to know my name. They want to know who I am. They want, And that was our experience when we came here. And when that's the type of church that we're a part of, 
then we don't have needs that go unmet. Babies are held. We're not up here going, we need more baby. You know, that's a good problem to have. That means more babies are coming in. We have one coming. Can't wait for one of you to hold my baby. Can't wait. What if we as a church began to live like it? What if we began to reflect the character of God? Not just here, although you all are beautiful people and are reflecting the character of God and His image for sure. But what if we began to do that in the nitty-gritty? Some of you got that. What if we began to reflect God's character in the way that we communicated with one another in life? in the trenches, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of me trying to grind it out and prove my worth in a mirror in my life says, sounds like you're trying to grind it out and, and earn God's favor. What if we began to do that? We began to allow people access to our souls so that our activity is making much of God and not much of myself. Because my activity is a terrible indicator of how I'm doing with the Lord. Because when I was in high school, all the surface level stuff was great, but my actual relationship with the Lord, I hate for you to see the inside of my soul at that time. And I won't ask about yours right now. So who are you? And what are you doing here? Where is your identity? Is it in your activity? It is in your accomplishments? Is it in how awesome you are and how great you look? And if you've settled that, what are you doing here on earth, in your community, and maybe even here at Bethel? Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful that our identity is, is not based on what we do, but because of who we are, we've been given a new name, we've been called something different, and therefore we can act different. Whereas before we had no choice, now we have the choice we can choose to follow you. I pray that we'd find ourselves doing that. Not alone. Life's not meant to be lived alone, that we would do that in the context of community. We do that in the context of rubbing shoulders with one another, of caring for our souls. That I would be that. That I would be a light in, in our life group, in, in our community. That that would be the true of me. That would be true of my people that I shepherd, and it'd be true of us as Bethel downtown as we follow you and try to make much of you. Thank you. Amen. So we'll stand, and I will read a word of benediction. This isn't a normal one, but since we're here, hear and remember this. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Go and do good works. You're dismissed. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.